You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's uh, January 2nd, 2017. That's right. Brand new year. Happy New Year. Woo! What do you got uh, for resolutions? 2017 New Year's resolutions from Ben Folks. Well, number one, I resolve to put up with less shit from Chad Dundas. Okay, wow. Even less than I already put that, up with. It hardly seems possible, but uh, I'm gonna it's, push a whole, it. it's a whole new year. I'm so. going to push it this year. Also, going to eat more fruits and vegetables. Oh, nice. But okay. first one is the shit thing. Yeah, great. Uh, I think I'm going to start a Twitter mailbag. Okay. Call him. You know what? Uh, my resolution number one forces me to tell you to go straight to hell. And uh, I'm thinking about just largely... Uh, subsisting by making cheeky videos. You know what? Maybe set up a desk. I'll come across this coffee table right now. Try to gotta still gotta think of a snappy name for it though. Resolution number three for you. The is ball bag. Be the speed kit. I got it. Never mind. I got it. Learn some offense off your back, my friend. Because <laughs> that's where you're headed. <laughs> well, another year of the Co-Main Event Podcast. Uh we hope that it's not the uh the last year of organized human civilization, but could go either way at this point. Yeah, we're playing it by ear, yeah, as, as it stands. So hopefully, we'll be here for all uh, the entire year to uh, talk about all of the highly important goings on in the world of mixed rules fighting. What could be more important? We got music again this week from our guy Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. Thanks to him for that. If you like what you hear, you can check him out at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. As you know by now, that's the word beats with a Z. That's Deltona, Florida? Yeah, Deltona. Okay. We talked about this before. Did we? I know Del- we talked Deltona about Deltona Beach. Fort Worth getting on the map, but all right. That's the fifth. I see now you got dbeats7 confused with the fifth element. I know who the fifth element is. T-H-A, fifth. <laughs> Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Ronda Rousey prepared for her comeback fight with total radio silence, ducking the UFC's normal media obligations to focus solely on re- getting ready for Amanda Nunes. So how did that work out? And in round number two, and forget about hope, writes the Roman lyric poet Horace during the times of Augustus, time goes running even as we talk. Take the present. The future is no one's affair. And in round number three, so wait, maybe it was Cody Garbrandt who was fucking with us this whole time? All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week, the first piece of listener mail of the year. Wow, what an honor. Whew, comes to us from Bill Biggs. He writes... So I just finished watching the 207th episode of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Your man Tilly Dills had a great fight, and then shit got weird. Dominic Cruz ended up finding out who his daddy really was, and I bet Mr. Cruz was as surprised as the rest of us. Not to mention, Edmund is going to have to return that 2005 Cadillac CTS base he just bought. So much for stretching out the payments to rebuild that credit score. Wow. Still, we're set up for a sweet grudge match between the new bantamweight champ and TJ Dillashaw. In your guys' opinion, 
Do you think they'll offer Cruz a rematch first or give Dills and No Love a chance to sell this camp versus camp showdown? It's a good question. I can see why this was the first question of the year. Really has a lot going on in there. There's a lot going on. We know we wanted to try to keep it topical. Yeah, creates uh, rich visual imagery when you imagine Edmund uh, Targaryens, the, the the Dragon King, staring at that Cadillac and going, "Oh man, I really had high hopes for this thing." But I was also a little bit surprised at Cody Garbrandt's insistence on offering Dominic Cruz an immediate rematch, because while I would like to see those two fight again, I feel like I would not. I would not say no to Tilly Dills versus Cody Garbrandt right now. I think there's a, a good narrative there. Tilly Dills obviously has proven his worth in the cage recently. I like how fired up he gets, claiming this shit is rigged if he doesn't get a title shot. And it seems like a little fresh matchup there after a long time of hearing Cody Garbrandt and Dominic Cruz go back and forth wouldn't be a bad thing. Yeah, um, and it's not. I think you know we'll obviously talk about this more in round number three, but it's not as though... Dominic Cruz versus Cody Garbrandt was so competitive that we need to run it back right away, which is probably one of the most shocking things about it, yeah. which I assume we'll talk about later in the show. Uh, I feel like, honestly, despite the, the, the protestations of the new champion, the fight to make is is with Tilly Dills, who goes out there uh, and has a, a pretty overwhelming performance against John Lineker. Uh, you know, in an, uh, a main card bout at UFC 207 and really... Uh, you know, if we all thought that John Lineker against TJ Dillashaw was going to be a preview uh, to how John Lineker might fare against Dominic Cruz, which even just saying that reinforces how much the world has changed between the last episode of the Co-Main Event podcast and this one, uh, it, it turned out that Dillashaw was kind of able to go out there and handle him pretty easily, steering clear of, of the power game of John Lineker and mixing it up with his wrestling to... Uh, you know, to grind out the, this unanimous decision, which was, by the way, 30-26 across the board. Yeah, and when you look at it, had pretty much a perfect game plan and execution for dealing with a guy like John Lineker. You know, on the feet, uh, keeping him at a distance, not letting himself get pushed against the cage and get stuck in one spot long enough to let Lineker get his power game going. And the timing on some of those takedowns was just incredible. Yeah, yeah. If you uh, can do that to people you become a real threat all over the place because they they constantly have to worry every time they take a forward step that they're going to end up on their back. No, like I said on social media on Saturday night, TJ Dillashaw wanted to go out there and have a mixed martial arts fight That's right. with John Lineker, uh, which in some ways seemed to take John Lineker by surprise. John Lineker seems like one of those dudes uh, who can't understand why people won't just let him bang. You know what I mean? Uh, but at the same time, you got to use the rules that are available to you, and, and TJ Dillashaw certainly proved that at this juncture he is the better bantamweight MMA fighter. Uh, and, I, you know, it, it seems to me that he and Cody Garbrandt could probably make some beautiful music together, promotionally speaking, leading up to a potential 135-pound title fight. Uh, Maybe they could use a ghostwriter or two in there when it comes to the pre-fight banter, because you got a, you got a good narrative between them with Dillashaw being a former alpha male guy, uh, Cody Garbrandt being the dude who we assume Uriah Faber is now living vicariously through. You got some interesting stuff to work with there. You got the snake in the grass versus, I guess, the grass or whatever. Uh, you know who could do that? Dominic Cruz, <laughs> if they're looking for a ghostwriter. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Um, I didn't, I did, uh, enjoy the note that I saw that, uh, that they saw each other backstage at UFC 207 and the reports were that TJ Dillashaw said, before all the bullshit starts, I just wanted to take this time to congratulate you on your win. So, 
Well, maybe some of this is going to be showmanship. That being said, let the bullshit commence. Indeed. Didn't Cody Garbrandt say something like, TJ Dillashaw, come see me, motherfucker, or something like that? In the During his post-fight interview after the Cruz victory? I, I don't know. He's in a lot he of did. stuff. Uh, you know, a lot of people have been saying, have been comparing Cody Garbrandt to, to, to the Diaz brothers. Have you seen this? I have not seen On that. social media? Saying I reject that, that this he, comparison. I, I, I do as hand. well. I, I do as well, although I've... I've been seeing a lot of it. I just wanted to throw that out there. Well, you know, I was surprised. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it later. But, you know, if you're knocking people down and pointing at them, I guess you're half of the way to being a Diaz brother right there. You just got to start showing up at events where you're not fighting wearing like a weird black leather motorcycle jacket that seems incongruous to the rest of your style somehow. Yeah, I don't know. You might have to ditch the scarves too, man. (laughs) Yeah, true fact. Uh, Next question this week comes to us from Todd Mueller or Todd Muller who writes, oh, he's from Green Bay, Wisconsin, by the way. Todd Mueller in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, I've written and deleted this question several times. With the latest weight cut miss, I am, I am compelled to ask Johnny Hendricks what's really going on. I don't want to hurl unfounded insults. So you probably know where this is going. Right? <laughs> is an unfounded insult coming our way I soon? don't want to hurl unfounded insults, but... It feels an awful lot like the welterweight sledgehammer known as Big Rig disappeared right around the time our friends at USADA showed up. Uh, this was written before the event, meaning Mr. Hendricks could still go out there and make me look foolish, kindly speculate at your leisure. Uh, you know what? We get, if there is one fighter that we get the most emails of uns, of admittedly unfounded speculation, it's Johnny Hendricks. Really? Yeah. Doesn't that seem weird? That does seem weird. It seems. And you I know, could unfoundedly accuse a lot more people, I feel like. Uh, it seems. I mean, I guess you, you can, you can kind of understand where people are coming from, just given the complete about face between that fight with UFC, with George St. Pierre at UFC 167. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the win over Robbie Lawler at UFC 71 and then going uh, four and one or one and four the rest of the way and, and missing weight those times. Uh, you can see how like people might have, have those thoughts, but it feels unfair to me to just like pick out Johnny Hendricks and say, well, here's a dude who obviously fell off as soon as, ad, ad, you know, advanced drug testing came in because, you know, aside from hitting the skids from 2014 to 2016, I'm not sure that we have an incredible amount of evidence to back that up. Well, it did seem like Joe Rogan was kind of making this, like, not quite going as far in the unfounded accusation direction, but hinting at it a little bit on the broadcast, where he was saying, you know, uh, Johnny Hendricks was known for having this one-punch power, and it's very rare that you see a guy lose that power all at once. Uh, that does sound like you're... At least planting the seed in our head, but, hey, what happened to this guy's tremendous power? It seems to have disappeared fairly recently. Oh, by the way, also fairly recently, the introduction of this expansive drug testing. But I, I think with Johnny Hendricks, it just seems like there are more things you could point to that would signal, you know, trouble in his career and life. It doesn't seem like it's just one thing. That, or at least maybe that's just my assumption. I, I didn't, my mind didn't go to that one place and think, here's the one explanation for everything going on with Johnny Hendricks. It seemed more like a combination of things. Plus, he doesn't physically look super different. You know, I think he's changed his fighting style maybe because when you get your back up against a wall, you feel like you got to go out there and win one. And if you come from a wrestling background, that's probably when you're going to start thinking takedown. But it doesn't seem to me like, I, I guess I just, 
I don't see from him what we're used to seeing from people who fall off all at once due to having to get clean. Yeah, you know, he's getting up there in, in, in years in terms of like his athletic prime. He's 33 years old now. Uh, Which in wrestler years is like 48. I suppose so, like, maybe. Like serious college wrestler years. Come on. You're saying a lot of wear and tear on the A lot the of body. wear and tear on the old bod. Yeah, that 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 might be, uh, you know, that might be true. Uh, can we talk a little bit about Johnny Hendricks's overall performance at sure. UFC 207? Because it was weird. I mean, the fight itself was not incredibly weird. It did look like Johnny Hendricks wanted to go out there and fall back on that wrestling base in order to uh, take a unanimous decision from Neil Magny. It just didn't seem like he did a ton else with it. Uh, and one of the weird wrinkles in mixed martial arts judging at this point is that you never quite know how the officials are going to regard that style of fight. Like if they're going to give the nod to the guy who controlled the majority of the action with his takedowns, uh, or if they're going to give it to the guy who seemed to like have more offense as, as compared to like, you know, just con controlling the flow of the action. And in this case, obviously they went with Neil Magny and gave him the nod, even though, um, uh, Johnny Hendricks seemed like he fully expected that he was going to win the decision. The weirdest part was was before that, where Johnny Hendricks came to media day uh, and had what I guess could be described as an erratic performance in front of reporters, uh, challenged the the working media to engage in their own weight cut during the next time Johnny Hendricks fights, uh, said that he was so close to making the the weight that he could he could taste it essentially. Uh, and then went out the next day and missed by three and a half pounds or two and a half pounds, I guess. Uh, so a strange, a strange performance from Johnny Hendricks and frankly, one that got a lot of attention when the two main event fighters were not present at media day. Right. So yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't really sure what to make of that, except that clearly this weight cut to 170. Uh, is extremely difficult for Johnny Hendricks, and when he's doing it, it does not put him in the mood to stand in front of reporters and answer questions about whether or not he may or may not be past his prime. Yeah, well, I can understand how when you're under a lot of pressure, as he was, you're trying to do this weight cut, maybe it's not going super great, and then everybody wants to talk about the stuff that's not going super great, and I can see how maybe you get kind of sick of that at a certain point. I also, though, wonder how all this other stuff affects his mindset going into this fight. Because if you go out there and you miss weight again for the second time in a row, and you've already lost two straight, you probably feel like you really cannot afford to lose that. And so maybe if you were willing to put forth a little bit more of an action style and look for the finish a little more, after you miss weight, if you're not already thinking like, hey, I'm going to wrestle my way to a victory here, I think that's when you start thinking that. Because you really feel like you can't, you can't afford another loss here. And his whole approach in that fight seemed pretty safe. Like, he just wanted to take Neil Magny down and keep him there. And he wasn't doing a whole lot once he got him there. Neil Magny, to his credit, uh, was making pretty good use of the time when he found himself stuck on his back, at least doing enough to make it so that the judges would have to give him a look and not just say, the guy on top must be winning. And I, I can see how maybe if you're Johnny Hendricks, you think like, hey, as long as I control this guy, that's ought to be enough. I'll take my win. I'll take a little bit of criticism uh, and then I'll move to middleweight and everything will be fine. I can I kind of can sympathize with him in that regard here um, because this doesn't look great for him. 
Speaking of which, Johnny Hendricks, I would say, and I don't really think that this is his fault all the way, but he seems to have an unfortunate penchant for producing terrible visuals. You know what I mean? Like, there's that picture that's made the rounds on social media, which is not new. It's an old picture, uh, but one where he's not necessarily looking in fight shape. I say, it looks like, like he's at a pool party. He's at a pool party, and he's, like, eating some ribs or something. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't look like he could roll out and make, make 170 the next day, uh, which, obviously, people have a lot of fun with when you go out and miss weight several times. Uh, and then the picture of him actually on the scale at the official weigh-in, the morning weigh-in before he's praying to his Jesus. UFC uh, 207, where he's just like literally covering his face with his hands. Like l- hoping that divine intervention will reach down and snatch a couple pounds away from him right there at the last minute. Like he can't even bear to look. Which like, that's clearly, that's just bad luck on Johnny Hendricks's uh, uh, count. But like, it's almost like having Junior Dos Santos face, you know? Where like once you start to get beat up, it looks you know, maybe even much worse than it actually is. For Johnny Hendricks, it's like an inability to disguise when things are going wrong outside of the cage face, yeah. almost. Just a uh, bad luck for well, him. And then afterwards, hearing you know, hearing him say that he's done fighting at welterweight, uh, and it's kind of like, oh, really? No kidding. It's kind of like if ever, when everybody at school sees you get dumped uh, right out there in the quad between classes, and then you make an announcement that you... You were newly single and have decided to to seek out a new date for the prom, and everybody's like, "Yeah, no, we knew that. We got the message already. Uh, we can tell at this point that you're done fighting at welterweight." It seems to me, though, you look at the you do the math on this situation. I'm adding it up, counting all the variables, carrying the one, and I see Johnny Hendricks as a money weight in Bellator pretty soon. Well, that's, that, that's that's bleak, that's the answer I got here. That's a bleak assessment. I can show you my work if you want. Now, I, I I just think. That's a bleak assessment of, of where Johnny Hendricks is at in his career, and maybe it's time for bleak assessments, but the thing that strikes me is is if this guy can't make 170, I, I don't know what the answer is. Like I don't know that at five foot nine and not being the most physically imposing dude in the world that he would have you know any more success at middleweight when you're out there fighting Yoel Romero for Christ's sake. I don't know that that goes that well for for Johnny Hendricks. Like yeah, even no UL Romero in Bellator. I'm just telling you. True. Yeah. Like, uh, but I mean, even you know, even a, a Tim Boach or Uriah Hall type character. Right now, like now we're getting down towards the bottom of the of the top fifteen at middleweight. I just feel like Johnny Hendricks has a hard time competing with dudes that size at that weight. So, man, if you can't if you can't make one seventy reliably, that seems like trouble. If you're a fellow, the stature of Johnny Hendricks. Do we even need to use the if in that situation anymore? He can't make 170 reliably. So maybe it's time for the bleak, bleak forecasts. I don't know, man. Next question this week comes to us from David Lotteray or David Lotterette. He writes, so Mike Goldberg's career path and mine are now virtually identical. As I see what you did there. As neither one of us works for the UFC, did Goldie stick around long enough to become beloved? A little bit of so bad it's good, similar to the golden god Bruce Buffer, or was he just bad? I think that job is harder than people realize, but Jesus, man, could he be hard? He could be hard to listen to. We pour, do we pour one out for the longtime commentator, or just shrug and move on? Now, see, this I feel like is kind of an interesting question because the departure of Mike Goldberg from the UFC after what, like two decades, uh, is a topic that seems of great interest to those of us. Who you you know inside the industry or inside the bubble you would even say, but is this a topic of any interest at all to the consumer? I wondered about that when 
there was really no mention on the broadcast that he was gone after this. Because if you're just, uh, you know, a guy who watches the big UFC pay-per-views, maybe you watch four or five pay-per-views a year, uh, but you watch it enough that you're, you kind of have it in your head who the broadcast people are, and then you tune into the next one, probably Super Bowl Sunday or something, or the day before Super Bowl Sunday, and it's completely different people, and thereafter, you know, there's no more Mike Goldberg. You might be paying just enough attention to be like, that's weird. Whatever happened to that guy? And they, you know, just especially after all those years with the company, no mention of it at all. That seems that seems a little strange to me. Yeah, it was a little bit weird to me that they didn't say anything about it on the broadcast and not give him any kind of uh, send off. Uh, and I know that people have made kind of a big deal about that afterward. One of the only things that I feel like I could say in the UFC's defense is I don't know where you put that. I don't know where you Very put it. Yeah, but like, think about Hardly this. Anybody's paying attention. Think anyway. about this. Like, if you're the UFC and you are planning this event, you are doing pre-production on this event. How can you plan to put the heartfelt goodbye for Mike Goldberg after the main event, where you are really hoping that Ronda Rousey wins? But if she doesn't, it's going to put a really somber uh, period on the end of this sentence. Like that just seems like production wise a weird thing to plan for like how do you like if ronda wins which you're hoping to god <laughs> she does uh you want it to be all ronda all the time all the way to the whatever the closing visual where you put the wwe logo in the corner of the screen and that's that's the end of raw you want it just to be all <laughs> ronda up to that point you don't want to go back to the desk so mike goldberg can talk about you know interviewing tank abbott in an elevator somewhere right i got it and i'm not saying it needs to be a big thing where you know you gotta the show video like package when are you gonna a, roll out the mike goldberg video mike package? package while we listen to boys to men saying it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday we don't have to do that but you could just have joe rogan mention something about how it's been an, an honor and a privilege or whatever and then away we go like it could just be something as simple as that but I, I don't know i again i, I don't want to make a huge deal about that but i do think David Lauderette or Lauderay, since this is what we do now when we don't know how to pronounce people's names, uh, I think he raises a good point that you started to see once everybody knew that the Goldberg era was ending, then attitudes about it shifted. Similar to what happened when we finally heard that like Strike Force was going away after the UFC bought it, and everybody suddenly remembers it a little more fondly than they did two weeks before that. And it's the same thing here, where and I get it to some some extent, like he was bad at times, awful at times, but he was still familiar. Like he was still there with you along all these years. And so you kind of, you do feel a little bit like he was ours, even if he sucked. And I agree, this job is harder than, than people realize. Uh, but then again, you see other people like John Anik and stuff do it and you realize it's not impossible. Right. Like other people do it pretty well. Uh, so I, I mean, I'm not sad to see him go. It, it does feel a little bit of like nostalgic where you realize this is changing. You know, there's new owners. Things are starting to change around here. Um, but man, I, I fear for what we will do next here because somebody's going to sit in that chair. And while it would be really easy to do the smart thing and just say, all right, John Anik, you're the guy now, uh, it does feel like the UFC is not going to make it that easy on themselves. No, initial reports are they're going to really overthink this thing. Even if you all you take is the word straight out of Dana White's mouth where he says that they're going to put together a quote-unquote dream team by next July, which why it takes six months to find a new commentator for the UFC, I have no idea. I do think you're right, though. This seems like 
I make this analogy. I've made this analogy on the show before, but it, it, you know, and I've said it about new UFC owners. I think the same thing applies to who you get in the play-by-play booth. It's like trying to find a new quarterback for your NFL team, right? Unless you are a fan of like five NFL teams, chances are you think your team needs a new quarterback. But who you gonna get is the question. Like if you're gonna go out there and, and trade in Tony Romo. Uh, you're not always just going to get Dak Prescott, right? Like, there's a lot of ways that can go wrong. The same thing I think is true of trying to get a new announcer for the UFC. And frankly, we've seen it go wrong a bunch of times. And we've seen it go wrong with people who are regarded as competent broadcasters in other sports. Like when uh, Strikeforce brought in uh, Gus Johnson right. to call the fights, and it turned out to be just a dumpster fire. Uh, the trick is... You got to get someone who is both a competent broadcaster and who can uh, reliably call the sport, which is the thing that John Anik. Yeah, you just described John Anik. Excels at. Uh, and you're right about Goldberg. I feel like it's really easy to dump on him. It's really easy to hate the play-by-play guy. Uh, and and I don't want to do that. I think like I think Mike Goldberg is probably a nice man in in his personal life. Maybe uh, the only thing that 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 you know, bothered me or that, that I found remarkable about Mike Goldberg was this was a dude who watched probably more UFC fights than almost anyone in the world, right? Because he basically watched them all until they brought in John Anik. So, you know, a solid 19 years or something of just spending basically every weekend watching UFC fights. And it never really felt like he expanded his catchphrase or like go-to factoids to use during the broadcast, which to me was... To, to, to show no evolution ba- uh, basically during that time seemed, uh, weird to me. Yeah. Like he did, I mean, this dude's still out there talking about Mark, uh, Mark Delagrati, right? <laughs> From most UFC events he would mention. It just seems strange that, uh, you know, he never really evolved that much as a broadcaster. And especially weird when you see a guy like Brian Stan, like who obviously has a different job than Mike Goldberg. He's the color commentator, not the play-by-play guy. But when you see a guy, a former fighter come in and seem to work so hard and so diligently to try to be good and frankly get better kind of all the time, it really casts in sharp relief this guy who, who, uh, it feels like he's coasting. Like, yeah. Or, or like been coasting. Like you're like just a, pulling a string years. and you're getting a, like one of five phrases is going to come out. Yeah. No. And that, that is true. All right, last question this week comes to us from Willie Mills, who writes, Friday night, we saw the fall of an MMA superstar, a fighter that transcended the sport and brought tons of new fans into the fold. I know it's not fair to build up a fighter so quickly just to tear them down, but is this the end of the former greatest of all time? A fighter that took the MMA world by storm and blazed a new trail for so many to follow, and then in all caps, is this the end of Baruto. I see a little misdirection there. You think he's talking about somebody else, but really it's all about your boy Baruto. So a sad day for the co-main event podcast to wake up. What was it? New Year's Day that we found out? No, New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve day. We wake up. I mean, I watched it live because I was still sitting here working on my column after the fights and then I get sucked into a Ryzen live stream. And you can't turn that off. No, of course. I'm going to sit around and wait to find out what happens with Crow Crop and Baruto and uh, at first, seemed like Baruto was executing his patented strategy of forcing someone into the corner and then smothering them with his girth. And uh, turns out, Crocop had a plan for that. Need him right in the old breadbasket, right in the solar plexus. Yeah. 
And he, Bruto didn't like that very much. Right. And by saying it, you, it looked like Bruto was going to work his game plan, this thing was only 49 seconds long. So it's but not like... For like 40 it's not of like, them. It's not like... Well, and maybe Bruto's going to go back to the sumo dojo and be like, I had him. I was right there. <laughs> Everybody's like, yeah, man, you had him. <laughs> uh, sad, sad news to see that Bruto's undefeated record had been dashed uh, by Mirko Filipovich during the res- his resurgent martial times. Uh I almost feel like this should be the end for Baruto. As much as I would love to see him come back and dominate the world of mixed martial arts as he was no doubt born and destined to do, going from an MMA career that spans from December 31st, 2015 to December 31st, 2016 seems somehow perfect for the big man Baruto. Yeah, like a rare butterfly that floated into this world and was destroyed. Because it was too beautiful. That's right. Frankly, it was too beautiful to last. And how about your boy Crow Cop, though, who, you remember the last time he won one of these open weight Grand Prix? It was uh, 10 years ago. Yeah, I was in grammar school. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and he was kind of, it seemed like he was kind of on the tail end of his prime then. It seemed like he was borderline too old then. And he goes back to Japan and rediscovers his martial times. How about that? Yeah, people are going to be writing us emails about Johnny Hendricks, right? <laughs> Come on, you guys. Well, I feel like this is one of those where the accusation does not even need to be lobbed. So I think you could lob numerous accusations <laughs> about the 2016 Rise and Openweight Grand Prix uh, when the last two fights are ending in 49 seconds and two minutes and three seconds, respectively. But it's Japan, man. Got a giant cup of noodles guy over there. <laughs> <laughs> who knows what's well, happening just having a good time anyway that's gonna do it for listener mail this week if you have a question a comment a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks you know how to do it you go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that gets you in touch with us while you're there you could sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast news always breaks stuff always happens we would like to think that the newsletter itself is is informative it's short perhaps it's even funny and if you don't like it it's really easy to unsubscribe so easy you know, we got an email this week, though, from a guy who had unsubscribed and then had problems resubscribing. Well, don't fuck around is the moral there. Yeah. Easy don't to play with our emotions. Maybe not as easy to resubscribe. That's right. But you know what? I had his back. I helped him out. He's back on the list. We'll let you walk out that door, but you want to walk back in again, you got to come see us. It's like man in the velvet rope outside a nightclub. Yeah, and we will abuse that power the first chance we get. You're damn right we will. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, Ronda Rousey didn't want any part of a lot of the stuff happening in and around UFC 207 this past week, uh, which was remarkable, I guess, because it was her long-awaited comeback fight, because we hadn't seen very much of her at all since uh, her loss to Holly Holm in late 2015. Uh, I guess if we had forecasted it earlier in the year or just imagined it in our mind brains, we would have thought that Ronda Rousey's return to the octagon would have been a splashier affair uh, in terms of of coverage and, uh, you know, her involvement and things like that. Uh, She chose to go the opposite way leading up to this fight with Amanda Nunes, uh, totally ducking out of all media requirements, 
leading up to UFC 207. The UFC also pulled Amanda Nunes out of all media requirements, which made, you know, if nothing else, this a historic event from the standpoint that it was maybe the first time in UFC history that neither of the fighters in the main event had, had showed up to any of the kind of standard pre-fight media happenings, uh, which gave it all a very strange feel. And ultimately, I don't know if it served Ronda Rousey's purpose or if it, you know, made her look any better or worse to the media. I guess it will open up with this question, the same question that I asked you about Mike Goldberg. Are we making a mountain out of a molehill here? Is this a thing that people just don't really even care about? Well, the thing that makes me think that is worth at least discussing is the fact that it doesn't happen. Right. You know, yeah, it's remarkable. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary from that standpoint, at least. Well, and you also have to ask why, right? Like, why was it important to Ronda Rousey to be able to say beforehand, like, all right, I'll come back and fight, but I'm not doing any of the media stuff. Like, I'll talk to Ellen. I'll talk to my buddy Ellen. Uh, but other than that, you know, I, I don't want to have to talk to these MMA media jerks. I don't want to sit there at their press conference and listen to their questions. I don't want to, uh, you know, go out there and, and have them all sticking their iPhones in my face uh, in, in some kind of media scrum. I'm skipping it. Um, because even if there was only minimal pushback from the UFC, there had to have been some kind of conversation about this. And Dana White said, you know, hey, I felt like she had done enough for us in the past that I could let her do it this one time. I could let her call her own shot on this. And there's, you know, there's got to be some reason why she thought that was important. And either she wanted to do it because she could, because she, you know, maybe nobody likes doing the media. If you think it's annoying, if you feel like you can get out of it, why not get out of it? Um, it seems more likely that this was something that was pretty important to her, just for getting her mind ready before the fight, or at least not having her mind messed with before the fight. And I can I can kind of understand that, because you know what the questions would have been like if she had had to sit there and go through all the usual media stuff. It would have been like, hey, are you still emotionally devastated after that loss to Holly Holm, the way you talked about? Uh, you know, Are you fully prepared for uh, this comeback? Do you think you'll be rusty? Do you think that you got all the demons worked out? You know, a lot of stuff that they will force you to sit there and think about and answer for, which you may not really want to go there in your mind in the days before the fight. Um, but then that kind of suggests like a certain psychological fragility uh, that maybe doesn't necessarily help you. And I think it's even more telling the her reaction after the fight. You know, yeah. same with the Holly Holm loss where as soon as she loses, she's out of there. You're not hearing anything from her. Um, and you contrast that with a guy like uh, Dominic Cruz showing up and being really insightful and uh, really honest and open in the discussion of his loss. Um, I, I think I think there is something that this can tell you about the individual people involved. Yeah, it, didn't, it certainly didn't help Ronda Rousey on the heels of either of these losses that she was juxtaposed so closely with uh, Conor McGregor the first time handling the loss a lot, a lot differently than she did. And this time juxtaposed with, as you said, Dominic Cruz, who showed up to the press conference looking like an extra from a Scorsese movie. Like he just came from the craps table and stood up there in his sunglasses uh, and in true Dominic Cruz fashion handled this shit like a true fucking professional. Uh, and that, I, you know, again, not her fault, but kind of reflects poorly, I think, on how Ronda Rousey handles uh, these losses. Uh, and like we said last week, this seemed like the kind of thing that was going to be obvious only in retrospect. If she went out and dusted Amanda Nunes, you know, in 45 seconds by armbar, we were all going to look at 
her decision to not do any media and think, oh, wow, how brilliant. Like she managed to focus on the fight, created this mystique around her return where people hadn't seen her leading up to the to the fight. They really wanted to see it. And then she went out there back to basics and Ronda Rousey to Amanda Nunes. And if it's a thing where she gets TKO'd in under a minute, as actually happened during the fight, it's the kind of thing that we look at and say, oh, it betrayed a mental fragility to not have her out there talking to the media. Uh, and that, you know, that could be true. That that could be a, a, a true narrative. It just is one of those things that feels like a little bit of a construct after the fact. Yeah. Well, but you know what? I think you can still go with something of like with the Conor McGregor comparison, because if you look at how, you know, he had a similar thing against in that first fight with Nate Diaz, where he was, it was basically a humiliating loss for him for a couple of reasons. You know, he had just mocked Nate Diaz relentlessly before that fight. Uh, he Then he goes out there, gets... Gets all Diazed up, gets submitted really quickly. As soon as he gets put in that choke, everybody's making fun of him for how quickly he taps. You know, he had this whole aura of I'm the greatest, nobody can possibly beat me, especially not this bum who I'm going to make fun of on CNBC, the money channel. Uh, and then he goes out there and that happens to him and it had to have that same, you know, it seemed the, the potential to have that same ego shattering effect. Uh, that Ronda Rousey spoke about after the Holly Holm loss, except the responses to it were completely different. Right. Conor McGregor goes out there and says, I want that one back. Give, he uses his star power to get that immediate rematch, even though we were all looking at it like, why? What? What is this? Uh, immediate rematch, same weight class, few months later. Uh, and he even did the opposite outside the cage, where he had been scheduled to be in that Triple X, the new Triple X movie with Vin Diesel, which I know you're very excited about. Yeah, uh, the return of Xander Cage. <laughs> that's right. Uh, call me when Ice Cube's back in the role, is all I got to say. But he pulled out of that, you know, pulled out of that stuff to focus on the fighting part of his life. And then went back in there and both in that fight and the decision to want to get that fight in the first place, you could see him growing as a fighter. You could see it in the fight where he was kind of pushed and really went to a, a deeper level than we'd seen him before. Yeah. And it was a, a net bonus for him, the whole thing. You know, and then he goes and maybe it's Eddie Alvarez and he's arguably fighter of the year. He, you know, Ronda Rousey was talking in that sound bite before 207 where they were saying, you know, they sit her down there and she's saying fighting is the most important thing to me. Fighting is everything I, you know, so I have to come back here and do this. McGregor was actually about that life. Yeah. He was he was actually showing us that fighting was the most important thing to him. And she kind of did the opposite. Yeah. And I guess maybe just to sum up this topic, obviously doing media prior to a fight, I think, should be elective. I, I, I don't want to force people to stand up there and talk to the to the media if they don't want to. It's not like we're out here uh, divulging, you know, worldwide government secrets or anything like that. Like and Ronda Rousey has reached the point where maybe she doesn't need the media to build her celebrity and, and, and all that stuff since she had done so much of it during her rise. But I also think, as as we've said here, that like when you don't do the media before or after the fight, and maybe even more influentially after the fight, that shapes the reaction to the fight. Not necessarily even from the media, but from all the people that the UFC apparently can't separate from the quote-unquote media. Like all the people who are going to make Radiohead album cover memes out of Ronda Rousey getting punched in the face, right? If you go the Conor McGregor, Dominic Cruz route, I think people are more likely to give you the benefit of the doubt and more likely to be interested in your next fight. If you go the Ronda Rousey or, frankly, Forrest Griffin, right, like storm out, run out of the cage uh, route after a terrible loss, it just seems like people take more glee in it. And 
as I've said before, I feel like people have taken a shocking amount of glee in Ronda Rousey's two losses. That aspect of it kind of bothers me. But at the same time, you know, the way that she acted after several of her wins and the way that she's handled these losses, I, I feel like if you do that, you have to kind of take the criticism when it comes because you've certainly opened yourself up to that a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think that, you know, if we're looking at this fight and we were already asking beforehand, is this going to be the, one of the last times we see her? She's already talking about how the career is winding down. Uh, all of this stuff, the avoiding the media before and after uh, and just kind of taking off after the loss, plus, you know, how you look in the actual fight, that can't help but affect how we think about that question coming out of this. You know, it seemed after all of this went down the way it did, way less likely that we see Ronda Rousey again. Yeah, in some ways I agree with you. And 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 when you talked about Conor McGregor uh, growing as a fighter, walking the walk, in retrospect, it seemed like that didn't happen for Ronda Rousey. Like, and I don't know wh- how much stock you can put in how things actually went on fight night. Like, if anybody gets punched in the face by Amanda Nunes, it probably hurts. But, like, she did this whole thing, right? She did this whole, I'm not going to do media I'm only going to focus on the fight. I'm going to train for a year. I'm going to take all this time off. And then she came back and just got dusted. And frankly, we didn't see any growth athletically from Ronda Rousey from one loss to the next. And I think that's what a lot of people were afraid of with her, you know, training camp situation and, and with her coach and things like that. The Dragon King, the Dragon King, Edmund Targaryen, Edmund Targaryens. Uh, and so I think that was all possible, all part of it too. And I think, you know, considering how both those losses went, and maybe that Ronda Rousey has other options. It's very tempting to look at the situation and say, yeah, she's done. With the statement that she released saying she's going to take a long time to think about, she takes some time, I guess, to think about it and decide her next move. I feel like conventional wisdom would dictate that that's the kind of thing a fighter says when they do come back at some point. That, you know, even if you're Brock Lesnar, you take all this time away to go back to WWE. Eventually you do come back for this fight against Mark Hunt. Uh, Conventional wisdom, conventional, yes, conventional wisdom has yet to apply to Ronda Rousey. So I can't say one way or another. Uh, but I guess like it wouldn't surprise me either way. Either we'd never see her again or three years from now she comes back and, and, you know, has that long, Gina Carano. Yeah. Has the long awaited Betch Cohea rematch that we've all been waiting to see. Yeah. See, that's what I think it would heavily depend on is what matchup the UFC wanted to give her. Cause I could see, you know, her going off wanting to do, movies or pro wrestling or whatever she thinks about doing i think it also might depend on uh how successful those things are because we've seen you know some concern in the movie industry about whether she can uh really do it as an actor and if she's not super successful there or even if it's just you know a couple years from now and the ufc says hey we got a pretty easy payday for you i could see her taking that up but it does seem like i i got no indication that ronda rousey planned to go back retool and then come on a tear to get that belt back yeah all right well you want to do are you fucking kidding me and then we'll move on to round number two is it that time already it is we just blew through that luckily we got another round coming up all right uh well ben my are you fucking kidding me this week is ronda rousey related so i think i'm just going to throw it out there first and that is as we just talked about during this entire round she spent this entire lead up to the fight saying that she didn't care about anything except getting that belt back going out there and beating amanda noons in fact during her pre-fight promo that she cut during the opening of the UFC pay-per-view, 
Uh, I believe she said she didn't care about money. She didn't care how many pay-per-views this sold. The only thing she didn't cared care about, about how she looked, didn't care about how she looked. The only thing that she cared about was going out there and getting this W smash cut to several minutes later. The UFC pretty much opens this pay-per-view with what a Pantene shampoo commercial starring Ronda Rousey. That looked like WME IMG had hustled to pull Serena Williams out of it and put Ronda Rousey in just so we could see her looking powerful and beautiful. And one has to assume making a bunch of that shampoo money. That's probably pro bono, right? So are you fucking kidding me? You're going to tell us at one point that you don't care about money or how you look. And five minutes later in a pay-per-view that we already paid 60 bucks for, we're going to be watching a Ronda Rousey shampoo commercial. You fucking kidding me? That was probably for the kids. It was yeah, a free one. Role model. That was stuff. on the house. Yeah. You're welcome, Pantene. Uh, my, are you fucking kidding me? You know, I tune in on the fightpass.com and what do I see right off the bat at UFC 207? Just as Tim Means and the other cowboy, Cowboy Oliveira, seem like they're getting into a crackerjack, Tim Means launches a couple blatantly illegal knees while, uh, the other cowboy has his knee on the mat. Uh, jacks him up pretty good with those knees. And then I felt like I had been taking crazy pills because the broadcast would have me believe that these le- the- these knees were seemingly legal. Uh, and yet Big Dan Mirgliata's in the cage saying, no, they were illegal. I'm sitting at home saying, yeah, I always thought that those were illegal. You can't knee a guy when he has a knee down on the mat. Seems like we've been through this before, multiple occasions. And yet both... Rogan and Goldberg are saying, no, we think that those were probably legal. Then they get Mark Ratner, the UFC's VP of Regulatorism. Yeah, he's going to bring clarity to the situation. That's kind of his whole role That's why he's there. That's why you have him there, because he's the guy who knows the rules inside out. He'll he'll come on and tell you what's going to happen next. And he says that the knee was legal. And I'm sitting there going, have I lost my damn mind? These guys, these are all three veterans of this sport. And then later on, though, when I saw that, uh, first of all, they announced it as a no contest, which doesn't make sense because those were not accidental knees. Tim Means said afterwards he meant to knee the other cowboy in the head right then, so it should have been a disqualification. But when Joe Rogan is interviewing Tim Means in the cage afterwards and saying, hey, we thought the knee was legal too, you can see big John McCarthy in the background grabbing his his hair as if he wants to pull it all out. <laughs> and then Tim Means goes to afterwards to talk to reporters and uh, says that he thinks fans should A, shut up, shut their mouths, and B, speak up for fighters like him so that they can get some star treatment like Conor McGregor, too. Huh, okay. You fucking kidding me, Tim Means? That's the time you choose to make this particular case? Are which you kidding is me? internally contradictory? Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad almost overshadowed in all this talk about Ronda Rousey and who she did and did not talk to before and after this fight. Your girl Amanda Nunes. First of all, she shows up at the ceremonial weigh-in in a damn lion mask. That's right. Really cracked up Ariane Celeste. And she turned like the Terminator to look at Ronda Rousey with the lion mask That's on. That's where she cinched it for me. I was on the fence. I was on the fence when I saw her come out with a lion mask that looked like almost intentionally cheap. Uh, you know, not movie quality. 
And then she turned and did the lion stare at Ronda Rousey. And I was like, okay, you thought this through. You did. Uh, first person to defend the UFC women's bantamweight title since Ronda Rousey. So she deserves some credit for that. Also, we have to give her her props for going out there and just straight smashing Ronda Rousey and then going right up to the Dragon King himself with the international hand gesture for shut your mouth. Yep. That, that was kind of incredible. Yeah. You could not craft like a better, you know, 90 seconds of your life if you're Amanda Nunes than what happened right there. Yeah, you know, I still don't know if I have a good answer for why the UFC told Amanda Nunes not to come to any of the media events. She was after. around a little bit, right? I was around some interviews. She did some, like, spot interviews. I think Ariel Helwani tracked her down in her hotel room. But, like, she didn't – they told her not to come to the media events. They didn't have a, you know, a chair or a, a backdrop for her. Uh, and she said in an interview that she had done the week before with local Las Vegas media that she found out about that when the UFC announced it to the public, which is – so you know, UFC. Yeah, right. That's just sort of par for the course with with those kind of things. Uh and I couldn't figure out really why they did that. And I know that in his conversation with Kevin Ioli from Yahoo Sports, Dana White said, you know what makes Amanda Nunes a star is she goes out there and beats Ronda Rousey on Saturday. Uh which is Friday, but okay. Yeah. Yes, Friday, excuse me. You can't really argue with the logic in that except to say maybe it would make her an even bigger star if she went out there and beat Ronda Rousey on Friday on the heels of a week long media blitz. I don't know. But Aside from the fact that I felt like it robbed Amanda Nunes of her championship moment up until fight night, in retrospect, I feel like maybe that kind of made it easier on Amanda Nunes leading up to fighting Ronda Rousey to kind of keep a low profile. And indeed, that's what she said leading up to the fight. And then she goes out there, starches Ronda Rousey, just like quite kind of literally knocked her silly, really, yeah. uh, in 48 seconds. And now you have women's bantamweight champion Amanda Nunes. And I wonder what the UFC can make of her because now we have the like women's MMA really entering this kind of like uncharted waters where, you know, Rhonda hadn't been around for the last year, but we were all kind of waiting to see whether or not she would. Now it seems like either she's just done or when she returns, she will face a, a much longer rehabilitative road than we had maybe thought. So now you have Amanda Nunes, you have this like burgeoning, fledgling 145 pound weight class, which seems almost unfortunate uh, that you would have that weight class that not only takes Holly Holm out of the women's bantamweight contention, but that also Chris Cyborg Justino might be staring down the barrel of a, of a suspension. So I don't know what you're doing, uh, with that. And then, you know, you've got, uh, Joanna Yajaychik at, at, uh, straw weight who seems to have all the potential in the world, but it has seemed also seems like a person that the UFC either doesn't have interest into turning into a Ronda Rousey style star or doesn't really know how to do it. So now you have Amanda Nunes who seems like she has a great story and goes out there and knocks fools out. And I just wonder. What can you do with her? What's the future of this division and this champion? Well, yeah, Danny Downs and I talked a little bit about this in our trading shots column because that quote from Dana White talking about, you know, the way she becomes a star by beating Ronda Rousey, like, and, you know, none of the promotion, you could not have done enough promotion that would have let people know who she was or, or made her into a star beforehand. It's the actual win that makes her into a star. And I agree that, you know, the win is going to get her a lot of attention, but if it were that easy, wouldn't she have already been a star? Because she beat Misha Tate up at UFC 200 in the main event 
of like a, a pay-per-view that sold a little over a million buys. She went out there and won, became the UFC's first openly gay champion, beat up Misha Tate, who's like the second famous, second most famous person in the division. If it were, if that's how it works, then she already would have been a star. But they kind of forgot about her after UFC 200 until now. Like she just kind of, uh, faded back into the woodwork a little bit. Uh, but then she comes out here and, if you can't do something with this, then it, it's because you don't want to. Because she looked fantastic. And when she landed that, that first left hand that popped Ronda Rousey's head back, that's probably 15 seconds into the fight, it was kind of over right there. Yeah. When she landed that, and you and you can see that. We've seen it now with Ronda Rousey at the Holly Holm fight and now here where that it goes from that scowl to that uh-oh face. And it, that's when it happened, right? That she landed that left hand and then she started uh, landing with that right hand. And, you know, she... The question for me now is what Amanda Nunes does in later rounds. Because we know, we've seen it with Misha Tate, we've seen it with Ronda Rousey. She gets on you early on, she has that power, uh, and she gets some momentum going, you're in a lot of trouble. Uh, but we've seen in previous fights, if you can drag her into the later rounds, then she might start to fade. Then again, she's got better training now than she had before. You know, being over there uh, with American Top Team, it seems like she has a little bit more behind her now. So... I'm interested to see where we go here, and you know, this seems like the point where we all knew was going to happen eventually, right? That Ronda Rousey would not be around anymore to help the women's bantamweight division. Can it still survive without her? Will people still be as interested in it? I think you got to start to put some weight behind Amanda Nunes if you want that to work. You'd think so, and I think you asked the the million dollar question there, whether or not the UFC will want to invest its considerable PR machine in turning Amanda Nunes into a star. Uh, because as Dana White said in his own, after his own self-described 45 minute long hug with Ronda Rousey. That's weird. That That's a weird thing to say. She built this. And like really what he means is we built this for you. There weren't even, you know, Dana White had not even been interested in having women fight in the UFC before they bought Strike Force and Ronda Rousey came into the fold and she kind of blew everybody's hair back. Um, which is not a Dana White pun, but like, uh, you know, they, they did sort of set up the women's bantamweight division as her personal playground. And she, and over the years, she's been one of the only stars that they've really invested in, like her and Misha Tate to, to a much lesser degree. And in retrospect, to see that Amanda Nunes beat both Misha Tate and Ronda Rousey during this year is incredible. And whether or not they capitalize on that momentum and turn that into momentum is, you know, the thing that remains to be seen. Also, now that you have Holly Holm out of the mix up there at women's featherweight, you have a situation where for the first time since Ronda Rousey lost the title, I'm not sure you have a, a totally clear cut number one contender, right? Because Amanda Nunes has already beaten Valentina Shevchenko. You got Juliana Pena, but I think a lot of people would look at that and wonder if she's actually ready to, to take that leap and, and compete at that level. Aside from that, as I said, Holly Holmes out of the, the division for the time being. Ronda Rousey is, is gone until further notice. And then you get into sort of the usual suspects of people like Raquel Pennington and Kat Zangano and Sarah McMahon. Uh, but there's not one real standout person to, to use as Amanda Noon's foil next time around. And it sure would be nice to have Holly Holm available. I know that's the, that's the thing, right? Like Holly Holm is the last person to knock Ronda Rousey out. Amanda Noon's just did it. Like, regardless of Holly Holmes' win-loss record since then, I feel like you could throw her into a fight with Amanda Nunes and just, and just let it, let it roll, man. It seems like the, the, the natural next 
thing to do. And maybe you still can. Maybe Holly Holm wins the women's featherweight title, beats Jermaine Durand, me. Iron Lady. The Iron Lady. And, uh, and then you, you go title for title. You go super fight at 135. I don't know, but it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And, and, you know, especially without the immediate promise of Ronda Rousey coming back, what the UFC does with these now three women's, uh, MMA divisions that it has. Do you think Amanda Nunes would have got the 45 minute hug if she'd lost? How long do you think the hug would have been for Amanda? Shorter. Nunes? A little bit shorter. You're taking the under yeah, on I'll that take, one? I'll take the under on the 45-minute hug. I don't think Dana White would have said, I love you, you're the best decision I ever made, as he recounted himself. Well, that's something before we end this round, maybe something worth talking about, because I, like you said, the, the glee that a lot of people take in Ronda Rousey's losses uh, tends to overshadow sometimes when the, the thinking about her legacy. Because let's say if, if this is it, I still think that uh, you know, you have to give her credit for prying open the doors there with the UFC. You know, she, and when he says, you know, you built this, I, I understand what he's saying there that she went out there and really made herself somebody worth paying attention to and did it intentionally and did it really well. Yeah. I remember you yourself, Chad Dundas, saying that one of the things that you had a problem with in women's MMA was everybody was just too motherfucking nice. And Ronda Rousey put an end to that. Sure did. She she jumped up there and got in Misha Tate's face to get that that Strike Force title fight, uh, and she really quickly became you know this this lightning rod and somebody that that people were really interested in. Got a lot of fans that were not traditionally in the MMA demographic uh, interested, and you know I think that that really does count for something. You know? Yeah, it's been unbelievable. And she like you all those things that you said plus tore through all of the top other women's bantamweight fighters in the world like it was nothing. Right. Just killed them until she ran across finally Holly Holm and ultimately Amanda Nunes. But, yeah, man, you can't minimize or belittle any of the things that Ronda Rousey has done in this sport. She was the whole sport uh, for a, a time and became the, the, like the simple fact that the UFC didn't want to have a women's division and then Ronda Rousey turned around and became its biggest star is in and of itself incredible uh just from like a promotional athletic story and now that she has lost twice in a row i know that the people are going to line up to say that she was never good etc cetera, etc cetera, and that's bullshit and i don't want to hear it and you know the, her run through the ufc was one of the most remarkable things that you will probably ever see in the life of this company you're saying that she's not just once in a lifetime, she's once in ever in human once history. Once in human history, bro. Human history's kind of long, though, but all right. <laughs> Could end any day now, though. That's, That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, what now will be said of Cody Garbrandt? It appeared as though leading up to this fight with Dominic Cruz at UFC 207 that Garbrandt had mentally checked out of this thing before the first punch was even thrown when Dominic Cruz first berated him during that first split-screen interview at the uh, UFC on Fox 22 and then forced him to walk out of a second televised interview between the two uh, during fight week, 
Uh, I know we talked about this last week on the podcast, and I think Dominic Cruz definitely felt this way. It seemed like he had him beat before they even stepped in the cage. And then Cody Garbrandt just took this fight over and, like, took it over from the word go. Like, as soon as what I would describe as a troubling number of his punches started to land in the first round, he immediately started mocking Dominic Cruz and Dominic Cruz's style of fighting in a way that he could not have done without premeditating it, which leads you to wonder or at least think that he knew that this was going to happen, that this was coming. Uh, and ultimately wins the men's bantamweight title by unanimous decision. Uh, kind of a mind-blowing performance from uh, from Cody Garbrandt, yeah? Yeah, and one that at least I did not see coming at all. And maybe it's because we got into a too simplistic mode of thinking about Cody Garbrandt that, all right, so he's he's a, a slugger, like he's, he's a power guy, uh, and that seems like a terrible strategy to have against Dominic Cruz, to go out there, plant your feet, and hope to just hit him with one big shot. Because one of the things that's been so remarkable about Dominic Cruz is that he just doesn't get hit very much, especially he doesn't get countered very much, which yeah. is one of the surprising things about this fight because Cody Garbrandt seemed to rely, especially early on, on getting Dominic Cruz to come in and then catching him before he could get out. And Cruz's footwork and his quickness, is, is, his angles are so great that that's one of the things that just does not happen to him very often. If you let that guy dart in and out on you, it usually seems like you're going to get picked apart. And he was doing a good job of avoiding Dominic Cruz's punches uh, and then coming back with something of his own before Cruz could get out of there. And that that's the thing that really surprised me. Um, but you could also see him just grow in confidence as that fight went on. You know, it's even when when he is getting Dominic Cruz to unload on him and he's the one just looking like Muhammad Ali out there uh, in the Matrix, you can't even find the guy, that's something... I, I would have predicted that that might happen in this fight, but I would have got the the roles all wrong, who would yeah. be doing what. Um, and, you know, Dominic Cruz gave him his credit afterwards. That, you know, it was a, a, a kind of an amazing and... Uh, unpredictable performance from Cody Garbrandt. And it makes you wonder if he can do that. Because one of the things that we said beforehand was, hey, he looks like a good fighter, obviously a talented guy, uh, but maybe he's not there yet. Maybe he's not at that level yet. Maybe it's too soon for him. If he can go out there and do that to Dominic Cruz now, it seems like a guy who might be able to hold it down at bantamweight for a little while. It sure does. And if, you know, if we underestimated him in any way, it was probably just maybe that we had not seen this all-around game from Cody Garbrandt. We knew that he had crazy power, as evidenced by three consecutive first-round knockouts leading up to this fight against Dominic Cruz. Uh, but it was all the other aspects of his game that, that were the most surprising during this fight. The mobility, his own footwork, his own technical boxing ability, his ability to counter, uh, and his ability to outquick Dominic Cruz, which is not something that we have seen in this division prior to this. And, and you know, you see Dominic Cruz out there at UFC 207, dare I say he looked a little bit plodding, a little bit slow uh, as compared to Cody Garbrandt. And I don't know if that is just due to the competition that Cody Garbrandt at 25 years old is is in his athletic prime and is just flat quicker than Dominic Cruz, or if it's a case where the age uh, and the compounding injuries have kind of started to slow Dominic Cruz down or, you know, most probably a mixture of both of those things. But this was certainly not a way that we are accustomed to seeing Dominic Cruz and and not the kind of victory I don't think that we could have uh, imagined for Cody Garbrandt. And in fact, even Dominic Cruz said, leaning up to this fight, if your game plan is to knock me out, you've already lost, which I think, you know, just speaks to the idea that maybe we all, including Dominic Cruz, underestimated 
all of the facets that Cody Garbrand would bring to the table during this fight. Yeah, I mean, he didn't knock him out. Dominic Cruz tough as all hell. Right, I, yeah, I, I that's think, what I'm saying. I think that uh, we're going to be paying very close attention to Dominic Cruz's next fight, whatever it is, because I think that there are a lot of people wondering, did Cody Garbrandt just jump up in ability, or did we not see how good he really was until this, or is Dominic Cruz starting to fall off a little bit, uh, which, you know, as one of my favorite Dana White quotes is that you go out there, uh, in this sport and one night you're suddenly old, you know, that, that can happen and you don't have to be falling off that far, uh, at that level of competition for it to really show. So I think it will be interesting to see if, you know, maybe Dominic Cruz rediscovers, a uh, some of that ability in his next fight, or if he's, or maybe this hit to the confidence really affects him because what has it been like 10 years since Dominic Cruz lost a fight? I mean, that's, he does seem, I'll say this, uniquely psychologically equipped to deal with it when you hear him talking about it after. And I think maybe some of that is all he went through with the injuries that really made him, you know, kind of forged him a little bit uh, in that fire. But I think when you hear him talk, one thing you're not concerned about is that he is mentally broken by the loss. Yeah. His last loss was March 24th, 2007 at WEC 26 at featherweight when he lost a title fight to Uriah Faber by a first round guillotine choke back when what Dominic Cruz was 22, I believe. Yeah. If I'm doing the math correct in my head. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is most amazing about 2016, Ben, in the UFC, aside from the fact that I think it's going down as the fight company's most profitable year of all time they kind of killed it on pay-per-view this year but the overwhelming changing of the guard especially at the championship level you look down the list of current ufc champions and very few of them have reigned any longer than than 2015 and a whole handful of them just won those titles this year and among that crop of new champions i wonder what kind of character cody garbrandt will be moving forward and whether or not He's a guy who can make the bantamweight division a little bit more marketable uh, in that he has that power that can knock people out. He certainly has an attention-grabbing look. Neck tattoos. When you see him. You're talking uh, about neck tattoos. He looks like if you if you fed into a supercomputer uh, male mixed martial arts fighter, it may 3D print you a copy of Cody Garbrandt and spew that out. Yeah, he's somebody you would expect like the computer to come up with in like an MMA video game and like you're working your way up the ranks. Or like, you know, you're watching Never Back Down 7 or something. Like, you, there's got to be a Cody Garbrand in there. So, yeah, I wonder what kind of guy he's going to be. Like, he's beefing a little bit with Conor McGregor as, I mean, aren't we all, really, at the end of the day, all trying to score that red panty night. Uh, he wants to fight Dominic Cruz again. He's got Tilly Dills lining up to fight him. Interesting stuff going on at Bantamweight, and it makes me wonder... Uh, how much of the load Cody Garbrandt can carry headed into two, uh, 2017 that will be, uh, you know, the, the superstars will be few and far between for the UFC, we think, at least early in the year. Yeah. I've, if we could just get the guy a trash talk coach, you know? Just get him a, an earpiece and let Dominic Cruz whisper in his ear. Well, Dominic Cruz then would have to fight the constant temptation to sabotage him. <laughs> uh, another fight pass show. Tell, tell them that you're a communist. Bringing up Garbrandt. They love that. All right. Uh, let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff this week? Well, we mentioned the tragic fall of Baruto at the Ryzen. Really? You're going to bring Eve that up again? Event. I know. I made it through the whole first discussion about Baruto's loss without choking up. Now you're bringing it up again. I'm bringing it up just as a transition to talk about what we didn't mention, which was 
the absolutely incredible shit show between Gabby Garcia and Yumika Hata, 49-year-old Yumika Hata. Uh, now, this was one where I was watching it on the stream as it was happening, and when I saw, uh, you know, you see Gabby Garcia walk out looking like a damn giant, and then you see her opponent, and you're also kind of just the whole time, I didn't really believe that they were seriously going to do this until I saw them both in the ring and thought, okay, I guess we're doing it. And I'll tell you what I certainly did not think was going to happen was that Gabby Garcia was going to have to deal with an opponent who was going to run the ropes. Starting out the fight running the ropes, <laughs> trying to win my heart. Old lady. I, I love that she makes it to exactly like three ropes. And at first, Gabby Garcia is a little confused. She makes it to three of the four ropes before Gabby Garcia decides enough of this bullshit and reaches out, grabs her. And from then on, it gets just fucking stupid. So I guess Wait, that's the point when it got stupid. <laughs> I guess I'm just saying I can't remember what I thought MMA's previous low was. It might have also been in Japan, uh, but I know what my new current low for MMA as a viewing experience is. And that was it. Wow, okay. That was it. Wow, just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, this week, I'm just saying that these rumors that Jim Rome could ultimately replace Mike Goldberg are just the latest happening that remind me that the people who own the UFC think that I like the UFC for completely different reasons than I actually do. It's just another reminder that we come from completely different planets, which is weird when you think about it, that this is a thing that I like so much that I have made part of my professional career out of covering it, and yet I feel so damn far removed from the people who actually make it. It's just unthinkable to me that you would get the opportunity to hit the reset button on the play-by-play -play sound of the UFC, and with the entire landscape of potential candidates to choose from, you might allegedly, reportedly, think to yourself, Jim Rome! That's our guy! It just, it just goes to show you that this is what they want this stuff to sound like. Like, cause Jim Rome is essentially a slightly better known version of Mike Goldberg. It's not a mistake that Mike Goldberg out, goes out there sounding the way he does. He's not there for nostalgia or loyalty, uh, or they're just waiting for him to retire so that they can go in, in, in different direct, in a different direction. Uh, they like this stuff. And that, to me, is just weird. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the CME in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week to break down uh, the lead-up to... The BJ Penn fight, right? Oh God, that's Sunday, scheduled Jesus for Sunday uh, after the next week. So we'll we'll talk about that. I'm sure some crazy shit will happen in the world of MMA between then and now. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Why don't you have to hit me with that bummer? Reminded me of that BJ Penn is going to fight Yair. I'm just paying you back for bringing Baruto up twice. Okay, well that's fair. Now when my Team Baruto shirt comes in the mail, I'm probably going to get too sad to even put it on as a night shirt because obviously it's size double X quadruple x large hang down to my knees for our plan to take that summer tour well, think tours. about this if baruto is done with his mma career he's not gonna have anything to do but hang around hosting barto tours so 
Estonia in July. That's what I'm hearing. They'll take us out and allow us to pet the wet noses of a few Estonian cows. That's delightful.